0: This morning, from 2 Peter, how can Christians say theirs is the only true religion? Or, do we say that? How can Christians say theirs is the only true religion? And I want to just kind of paint a little bit of background before we start feeding on today's text. I want to spend some time looking at the reason today's text matters so much, why it's so important. And, and we need to see the conflict that our inner selves might have with what Peter's going to say in this morning's text. Even if we're good, faithful, church-going people, we might have some difficulty with it. So before we look at some words from Peter, let's look at some words from Jesus, our Lord. The text I'm thinking about here is Mark 8 Mark 8:38. 8, Jesus is speaking and he says, for, "For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous I want to look at that word for a minute. Because strangely, the text has nothing to do with sexual sin. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. So there's me, the person, and the words, what that person says. Whoever is ashamed of me, one, and two, ashamed of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him or her, will the Son of Man also be ashamed? It's quite striking, isn't it? When he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. I've thought a lot about those words. According to our Lord Himself, how how good a Christian are you? Kind of a disciple. Jesus seems to say that at least one of the real tests of loyalty, it, it comes when divine revelation Causes, requires you to say things that your surrounding culture no longer finds acceptable. Real test of discipleship is how you respond to things Jesus said, my words, how you respond to things Jesus said when. The people at school, the people at work, the media, the surrounding culture finds the things Jesus said unacceptable. What do you do then? Jesus says, there. There. At that moment, when you're with your friends, when you're in that class at university, when you're on the job, there. Right at that moment. That shows whether you're following me or not. Quite striking, isn't it? That that's what Jesus meant. He makes clear with specifically adding those words, and of my words. Ashamed of me and of my words. I'll tell you why he says that. There's nobody who's ashamed that Jesus healed the blind and the lame and the leper nothing embarrassing about that's wonderful virtually the whole world celebrates his adorably humble birth wrapped in swaddling clothes you'll see nativity scenes all over the people that don't even go to church isn't that sweet baby jesus meek and mild no. It's it's his it's his words. It's his words that make the world cringe. It's when he says absolutely no one can find God apart from faith in his saving death. It's when he says marriage had to be monogamous and absolutely heterosexual. It's when he talked about eternal reward and eternal damnation of the lost. Those words, those words make the surrounding culture angry and they make professing Christians timid. And Jesus says, you're going to have to push back against that if you want to follow me. You remember that that poster and it's... it's, uh, you don't see it as much anymore, but it had a huge run where it was like walking along the beach and you see the footprints. And so there's two sets of footprints. And then for a little while, there's just one set of footprints. And of course, the question is, Jesus, you were walking with me. What happened there? And Jesus says, well, that's when I was carrying you. I saw another one It had it had. Footprints, another set of footprints, and then footprints and a, just a line in the sand, two lines in the sand, and, and Jesus said, that, and that's where I had to drag you a while. Somehow I always related to that one a little bit more. I still see the poster and I think of it differently. I see that footprints thing, and I know it's not the point of the poster. And I, and I and I and I think about following Jesus, and I and I see Jesus saying, "You see where I put my feet on every issue you can think of? Where I put my foot, you put yours in exactly the same place. Not an inch to the left, not an inch to the right. Right there, where I stand, you stand. What I speak up about, you speak up about. What I say, you say." right in exactly the same place, where I put my feet, right there. That's where you, if you're following me, that's where you put your feet. We're in lockstep on everything. And so Jesus says, I have to push back against that inner reluctance, timidity, because... He says, if, if you're ashamed, it can cost you your soul, Don. And so, for a, a watching and listening world, a culture that rarely picks up a New Testament, of course, there's only one way they'll ever know the words of Jesus. And Jesus assumes that I I say the same thing. Jesus assumes his disciples will be saying those words. They're not reading them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not likely, not your neighbors. It will be obvious to a listening culture that we say the same things Jesus said. Pastor Don, why are you harping on this? Well, A, I don't know if I'm harping. I'm trying to emphasize what... Jesus seems to emphasize. But it matters to me because I find a growing number of people who talk about believing in Jesus instead of believing everything Jesus said. You see the difference? Believing in Jesus, like, well, he, he, he just came to rescue us all from our sins, and, and he, he died on the cross, and I, I just love him, I love him, I love him. I believe in Jesus. Well, he said this. Do you believe that? No. Well, then you don't believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means believing the words of Jesus. And he said, make, make, sure, make sure you don't try following me while ignoring what I say. <laughs> make sure you don't try following me while you adopt different views on issues than I have. Because you're following me. Remember all that, and let's get into our text second Peter chapter one sixteen to twenty one We'll be in this for two Sunday mornings. We just have one point. I mentioned this before. my dad used to teach homiletics in the Bible college that I went to out west and I remember in a preaching class, someone asked him how many points a sermon should have, and my dad said, well, at least one. So I have one. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. For we, that we, that's the original apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Notice that word devised. You can can construct a truth that people will like to hear rather than one that maybe is faithful to biblical revelation. Devised, constructed. Accounts designed for easy marketing, maybe. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, quotes, they heard the words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. says, we ourselves heard this very voice. Born from heaven, we were with him on the holy mountain. And and we have, this we is us, the audience now, not just the apostles. We have something more sure. The prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a, a lamp shining in a dark place. The dark place is everywhere where... God's word isn't revered and honored as absolute objective truth. It's it's darkness without the word, this world. A lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, make sure you know this, and then he says actually knowing this first of all. Of all the things you're going to give your attention to in the Christian faith, start with that. That's what he's saying. Start with that. That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were, this is interesting, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Even a... Just a quick glance at at the first 15 verses of this opening chapter of 2 Peter reveals some uh, amazing claims that Peter had been making for the Christian faith. We've studied some of them. Uh, The grace of God in supplying the righteousness we so desperately need. That's verses 1 to 3. And then he talked about the incredible power of the promises of God in verse 4 of that chapter. Promises that actually generate a new nature. Promises when you take them seriously that they, that they push back the corrupting influence of inner desires that we all have in us from the fall. The promise of a, a hope that is eternal and unfading can't be taken away. You go through all sorts of things. Some die young, some die old. You need a hope that outlasts that. 10 and 11 of that chapter. So there's just so much good news there. God's grace, the power of the promises, eternal life, a hope when Jesus comes again. It's all very good news, but it also raises the same question. How do we know it's all true? Anybody in the room want to believe something that you know isn't true? It makes no sense. How do we know this is all true? There are all sorts of religions. All sorts of teachings. All sorts of aids to better living, cleaner living. All sorts of paths to better self-esteem, more inner peace. This was true then. It's true now. It's always been the case. Most of Peter's audience left other religions to come to Christ. Why would they do that? These weren't non-religious people, not the majority by far. They were people who were passionately possessed by other religious convictions. What would make these people leave their religions, embrace the teaching of Peter and the rest of the New Testament? Why would they do that? Why should you? Why should anybody? That's the central issue in the verses in front of us. it's almost as though peter anticipates the question he's not a young man anymore he's an old man and it's almost as though he can he can hear the questions bubbling up as he as he unfolds and unpacks the marvels of following christ it's almost as though he can hear people saying what what peter what makes us think ours is the only true religion so i got one point that I want to look at this morning and some others next Sunday as well. So here's the one and only, point number one. It's, I, it's too long. In the New Testament, the foundation for the truthfulness of the claims of the Christian faith And I changed the wording of this just a bit, maybe, from what you're going to read. Is never left in the realm of any personal vision, insight, change of behavior, or experience of victory or deliverance. If you aren't surprised at that point, you ought to be. Because all of those things are very precious parts, I think, of valid Christian experience. They're, they're gracious gifts of our loving Heavenly Father. There's nothing bad about any of them. They're important. All I'm saying here is, none of them is the starting place in determining the truth of the Christian message. That's the issue Peter is dealing with. Your experience of Jesus is wonderful, crucially important, but, but what's underneath that? What's underneath that experience? What's what's the foundation your experience rests down on? What's it built on? And how do you know yours is the only true foundation? Or the best foundation? Granted, what you've experienced is wonderful, but other people have had wonderful experiences. Look what Peter says in that 16th verse. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when I read that, I'm surprised. Aren't you surprised by what Peter doesn't mention in that verse? I mean, he could have said... Here's why I follow Jesus, and here's why you should too. And then you'd expect Peter to say something like this. I was once a, an uninformed, calloused fisherman brought up in the Jewish religion. And I lived a, an impulsive life, hard-working life, I was raised in a totally different religion than Christianity. But Jesus came one day and he said, follow me. And I did. And everything changed for me. My life took on new meaning. My life turned 180 degrees. Look at me now. I'm a preacher. I'm an apostle. And I've had such an amazing relationship with Jesus ever since. He changed my life. That's what Peter, Peter, that's what you should say. Or perhaps Peter would have gone even deeper. He might have said, you know, I denied Jesus three times. I denied even knowing Jesus. I refused to admit having anything to do with him. And I watched Jesus die and I never got a chance to apologize before Jesus died and Peter would say it's one thing to fail the Lord you love but that weighed heavily on me until Jesus came resurrected from the dead and then Peter would say what tender grace Jesus showed me all I did was abandon him Oh, I bragged, and Jesus sought me out, and Jesus restored the broken pieces of my life, and I've never looked back. I know the joy and the power, the flow that comes from forgiveness. Oh, Jesus is different. There's no one like Jesus. He could have said that. That's a testimony. We would teach people to give a testimony like that. Here's how you share your faith. That's what I would have done. And and the really strange thing is that's not what Peter does at all, not even close to what Peter does. He doesn't, at this point, appeal to personal experience at all. He, He talks about objective historical facts. He uses words like eyewitnesses testimony, declared, the kind of words you'd expect to hear more in a courtroom than in a religious setting. And maybe there's something for the church in that. I mean, just, just maybe. Maybe it's, it's easy for us to be not so much interested in pursuing doctrinal truth, but some kind of a seminar in 2019 about meaningful living, healthy living, wholeness, Purpose. You you give people a choice between studying the lives and the writings of the apostles and taking a course on finding freedom from your inner conflicts. We'll usually pick the latter. Truth can sometimes take a a bit of a doctrinal truth can take a bit of a back seat to personal need and hunger and fulfillment it might matter more than we think because there is a world of difference between trying to solve your problems and growing in the Christian faith they can be tied together many times i'm not denying it success we do it here at the church and celebrate recovery they can be tied together but they can easily become isolated Christian faith isn't therapy. It's factual, historical truth. So the first question is never does this faith work. The first question is always, is this faith true? I'll tell you why I think this matters. I think it matters because as the church moves closer and closer to the therapeutic edge of the religious spectrum, the more indistinguishable the Christian faith gets from every other. Encounter group, help group on the market. Please understand what I'm saying. It's not just that we'll lose the ability to defend the Christian marriage without Christian faith. Christian faith message without its historic doctrinal foundation. It's not that we won't be able to defend it. It's that increasingly we won't be able to define it. And so Jesus Christ has come, and he's. Here's why Peter does what he does Jesus has come, and he's set you free from self destructive habits. You feel accepted. You feel loved. And you should. You no longer live with fear and shame. Your marriage was crumbling, and it's been saved. You've been healed. You have a happy home. You feel in control of your life. Your priorities are sound and suddenly they're in order when they were scattered and fragmented and that's wonderful news and then you hear that John Travolta and Tom Cruise they found exactly those same things in Scientology and John Lennon found them in Eastern meditation now what are you going to do flip a coin What does that do to the place of the gospel in the scheme of things? Where, where, what, happens, what happens to the uniqueness and the unique importance of the Christian message? Why should people leave even what they may have found elsewhere and still come to Jesus as Lord, especially if coming to Jesus as Lord might cost them a great deal? So Peter, Peter puts this whole issue in a nutshell. He actually does it in the very first verse of this letter. If you went back to chapter 1, verse 1, here's, here's the very first thing Peter says. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to whom is he writing? To those who have obtained a faith, and here's the words, of equal standing with ours. This faith, he's saying. I'm, I'm only talking about people who believe this. About, about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his shed blood, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. You, you, that's the faith I'm talking about, Peter says. That's the only one I'm talking about. Your faith has to be this one or it doesn't count. And you can't say that in today's world, can you? And Jesus says, if you're ashamed of that, I'm going to be ashamed of you. You you put your feet right there where I put mine. So when Peter talks about the foundation of the faith, he doesn't even mention any personal experience at that point. Inward, I mean. He really doesn't talk about himself other than what he heard on the mount. He starts with this revelation of the righteousness supplied historically by God through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so the practical application of this point, it's not complicated. It's, It's really pretty direct. Here's what Jesus was saying. Here's what Peter is saying. Hook people up to Jesus Christ, not just your experience of Jesus Christ. Hook people up to Jesus Christ, not just your experience of Jesus Christ. You'll get to your experience of Jesus Christ. But let them know that what you're experiencing isn't just some psychological state. It's based on stuff that happened that they can rely on even when they don't feel something inwardly. Experiences have a lot of variables, don't they? It doesn't mean they're not genuine. It, it, just, means, it just means experiences, even religious experiences, aren't processed in exactly the same way in every life. How, how people sense the presence and work of the Holy Spirit isn't always cookie cut exactly the same way in every Christian's life. You can prove it pretty easily. Have you ever had this experience? You've gone with someone, a fellow Christian, someone in whom the same Holy Spirit dwells as the Spirit dwells in you. And let's hypothetically, you, you go to some big event. It's a Christian event. Lots of people. You go to the same meeting, you sit through the whole thing, you leave. And, and this person is saying, oh my goodness. Did you sense the presence of God in that place? I have never been so moved by the presence of God as in that room. That was life-changing. And you like to think of yourself as spiritual as that person. And you're thinking, you know, I wish he'd used the Bible a little bit. Like, it, I probably just should have stayed home. Who's right? We all, we all experience things differently. We have our own temperaments. And all of that enters into how the Lord works and moves our lives. Simple illustration. Here's a person who's immediately set free from, pick an addiction, I I don't really care. Um, What should we pick? Alcoholism. Here's two people. And here's a person who is immediately set free from that addiction. And here's another person who, boy, continues to wrestle with it for years. And so you hear their stories. This person who's never had a drink again, the desire just left them. And this person who to this day, gaining inch by inch, but still struggling. And then you find out this person who was instantly delivered, found relief through hypnotism. And this person who still struggles week by week, month by month, is getting help from his prayer group and Bible study. Which is better? Well, this is better (laughs) because this is based on truth. That's what Peter is pressing home in this text. The the, the glory of the incarnation, the sin-cleansing, wrath-bearing work of Jesus on the cross, the the hope-pumping glory of the resurrection. Those things are are the tools through which the Holy Spirit wants to do His work in human hearts and in human minds. This is where Christians anchor in the Spirit-inspired revelation of historic eternal truth. And they anchor their minds and hearts in these historic events because Peter says he doesn't want them relying on someone's private revelation, Peter said in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So, did an angel really talk to Joseph Smith? Did an angel come to the prophet Muhammad? Well, it's up for grabs, isn't it? They say so. We may never know. Paul talks about angels that come and speak and bring you something different from the gospel, but we'll never know. But, but, but you see, everyone saw Jesus crucified in Jerusalem. Followers, non-followers, believers, non-believers, intellects, simple people, rich, poor, religious, non-religious, historians of all stripes write about the crucifixion of Jesus, outside of Jerusalem, Christianity doesn't have its roots in private truth, but in very public truth, in very observable, recognizable truth. And here's the surprising ending. Strangely, here's the upshot of emphasizing this objective, public, historic, doctrinal anchor for the Christian faith. The result is, not academic, the result is extremely practical. Here's how Paul puts it, and I'm closing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What's that talking about right there? That's the crucifixion, right? We're agreed? That's the crucifixion. I mean, he gave him up when he was born in this world, but ultimately gave him up for us all. So that's, that's the doctrinal part. Oops, did I do it? That's the doctrinal part. Here's the practical part. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul's doing? He he starts here with the historic stuff. And he says, if you will will make sure, wherever you go to church, whatever Bible study you go to, uh, whatever books you're reading, if you'll make sure that what they are emphasizing are these doctrinal truths of the faith. Here's what you're going to find out. Your confidence that God's going to graciously give you all things, all things that you need right now, that's going to grow. So what ultimately feeds your faith more? Do you see what Paul's saying there? Go there. Go there because, because if that's true, if God really did the great work already in Christ, the logic of redemption is what are you bringing to him now? Because if he gave Christ on the cross, his own son who spilled blood and died, if he did that for you while you were his enemy, what will he do for you now that you're his son or daughter? No wonder, eh? Tie your boat up there. <laughs> Something unshakable. It's, it's an old, old story, but it actually happened. When Robert Schuler was still alive at the Big Crystal Cathedral. He was you don't see him. I've been there when he was pastor. You never see him. He's got security guards. He's in, he's out. He's but he was coming around, and there was an old lady that was weeping, and she was standing by the door, and he just happened to bump into her and Asked her what was wrong. She said, I lost my car. I can't find it. It's a football field parking lot. And he said, well, didn't you mark it somewhere when you came in? She said, yeah, I I parked it by a big bus. And he helped her, and then he said, next time, park it by a flagpole. Something that doesn't move. (laughs) Something that doesn't move. Anchor your faith here, at church. Let every bandwagon, just let them pull up and roll by. Just let them all roll by. There's going to be millions of them if you live long enough. But if you'll anchor your life here, you'll find that that's the soil that grows the best fruit in all areas of your life. And everyone said,